whatever happened at his resurrection turned Jesus of Nazareth from a human being with his own history, story, career, preferences to a, a spirit. How do we become good people without being intolerable? Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors, Alex Blanton, Kent Hodgkins, and Nathan Wilkerson, are seeking to recover from bad ideas about God and recover what's good about the gospel and the Christian life. Alex is out today. It's Nathan and Kent taking it alone, taking the hill alone today, and picking up where we left off last week, which was concluding remarks about how uh, the Bible is not a rule book. And the New Testament is not our ethical system, but rather yields for us the gospel message. Yes. And that becomes our ethical system. Yep. And the question then is, how does that work? How can an announcement about the deeds of God in the life of one person in history become the ethical standard for the world? That's our question for, the, for That's today. That's the big question. And I know um, we keep bringing this up and saying this, and I, I say this to a lot of people that it's not the New Testament, it's the gospel. And, um, and we were having breakfast yesterday and Alex and Kent were calling me out for being too obscure to just, you know, I, I think that uh, it's easy to, for me, because I've thought about this a lot. I mean, I've been thinking about this since, uh, I don't know, the mid nineties, uh, as long ago as that was 20, 26 years, which it doesn't feel that way when you're really old, but, um, yeah, I've, I've been thinking about this for a long time. So it's, it, I take it for granted that, you know, when someone's like, well, how should I live? And I'm like, well, Jesus died on the cross. What do you think? <laughs> and they're like, connect the dots for me, man. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And I, so I, I take for granted that that's just, um, that that's, in, in, you know, known, it's implicit, but it's not. I, and I, and uh, that applying the gospel is, is in and of itself, I, I think, a discipline. It's something I... If someone were to ask me, why does the New Testament exist, the book that we call the New Testament, why does it exist? I, I would say at least 50% so that we can see what it looks like to apply the gospel. That whether it's Paul or Peter or whoever, they're wrestling with the same thing. Mm-hmm. That they'd, they'd rolled in, they'd announced this message, now, they were Jews, and so they were already living somewhat of a moral life, a godly life. Um, and for them, I, I think that the gospel had become pure motivation. It's like they, they, had, they had a degree of guidance. Um, in a way, they were too scrupulous in some things, and, and we see them wrestling with that. Mm-hmm. But for them, the, the message about Christ, it really just propelled them in a direction they were already pointed and yet they go into town and they share this with these gentiles and um it's not necessarily as obvious as they thought it was and so now they have to go back and write these letters and i and i think that that that's a discipline that we have to do and and uh the beautiful thing about that the blessing for us is you know i've been critical of paul a couple of episodes ago of, of the way he's treated women and stuff like that and 
and just the New Testament in general as a rule book, but uh, I, I guess I need to come back and say, but this book is is a great treasure in that it gives us wonderful and highly competent examples of people applying the gospel, wrestling with the moral, ethical implications of the gospel message. And so we can go to the New Testament and um, learn a skill. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what, what's the New Testament for? If it's not a rule book, if it's not giving us prescriptives, well, it is, it is showing us people who are, um, who are adept at using the moral compass. Mm-hmm. So not everybody can use a compass to find their way out of the woods. I mean, that is, in and of itself is a skill. Um, certainly, if somebody has a compass, they have the means to find their way out, but they may not have the skill. They may not understand, you know, the nuances of that. And I, and I think that that's probably a pretty adept and uh, apt analogy uh, for the gospel. And what we see in the New Testament are people who know how to navigate with the compass, but they really want us to then take the compass mm-hmm. and navigate in our own lives, as I think they did with their original readers. So that's what we're going to do today. All that to say, uh, we're going to go through some of the New Testament material on how to use the gospel to, as a guide to conduct our lives. Right, right. Now, and and again, the premise uh, begs the question. Maybe you could answer that again. What? Why is it that we need to use the gospel to uh, and learn how to use the gospel to make decisions in life, versus? obey the New Testament. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I, I kind of touched on it last time. I, I think there probably could be a lot of answers to that, but I'll just share the one that comes off the top of my head. And that is that the, any, any written set of rules is immediately obsolete. Uh, circumstances change. And, and just because God gave a, a list of rules, it doesn't mean that it won't, it's in some way, become either antiquated or it won't it somehow be abused. Uh, people will find loopholes. I know that in, you know, in my legalistic days, we were really preoccupied with when is this rule binding and when is it not? Um, rule, rule keeping just in general as a standard almost becomes um, impossible in some ways because rules conflict with one another. You know, Jesus himself dealt with that with the Pharisees. He's like, you guys, you tithe all these things, but, you know, you foreclose on widows or um, you say whatever, you know, in whatever way your parents could have been benefited from your, you know, your assets that well, that's been given over to God. And so now we find these ways around it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and it doesn't make us good people. Rule following doesn't exactly, make, exactly. set us free. Right. And, and so we have this. This, uh, you know, sadly, we've got these guys in the Gospels, the Pharisees, and we, and we, I, I think oftentimes we would, we would blame them as being fundamentally flawed, or they're somehow different from us because they were hypocritical. But, at least in my experience, um, I think anybody who tries to follow a, a prescriptive religious standard will become as they were. Right. So that's the danger of it. Um, and then, it's... You know, it, but we also need the gospel 
to guide us because we can't not have a true north. We can't not have an objective standard or else we're just making it up. And, and it becomes so transitory um, that there is no guidance at all. And we're just reinventing the wheel with every generation. We can't hold one another accountable, not in any serious sort of a way. You're advocating that the gospel message is our standard, it's our true north, it's our ethical guide. And uh, that over against uh, following every word of the New Testament, that over against following Jesus in the Gospels, which I think is a common approach these yeah. days, uh, folks would say, well, you know, I'm not a legalist who is trying to obey every command in the New Testament. I'm just trying to follow Jesus. I'm just looking yeah. at Jesus in the Gospels and maybe a particular emphasis on Jesus's command to love God and love uh, your neighbor. And that's good enough for me. And yeah. you're advocating against that instead for um, the gospel message as our ethical norm. Right. Is that right? right. Yeah. And why is that? Well, uh, for one reason, I mean, I, I think that the gospels can, the even Christ's own instructions, say in the Sermon on the Mount and stuff, can become subject to the same abuses um, that any other rule book does. Um, what we find is that uh, the, the kind of follow Jesus movement becomes... Um, Hey, we're, we're we're not trying to say it's it's uh, legalism or rule following. You just have to sell everything you have and move to a foreign mission field, or you're not a real Christian. That that becomes a problem because we don't see that. You know, we don't see that in the New Testament. Uh, it makes following Jesus very situational. So how do we, you know, how how can we apply that? It makes it inaccessible. Um, you create a hierarchy based on just how much somebody has given up for the gospel, um, whether you want to or not, it just always happens. So, uh, that, that does, that standard just actually becomes in, in some ways almost more oppressive than trying to follow, say the prescriptives in, in Paul's letters or whatever. So, um, it looks like it's trying to recover new Testament Christianity because you, you get people who are selling all they have or giving very generously or moving to the foreign mission field. But we have these correctives in the New Testament of somebody like Ananias and Sapphira. Let's say they gave, you know, it says that they sold it and then they brought the money and they, they claimed it was all of it, but they held some back. But whatever they gave had to have been uh, the majority of the money that they made or the ruse wouldn't have worked, you know. And, and so uh, what, we, what we see here and that these people are really the only people we see in the New Testament who are uh, instantly judged by God and stricken dead on the spot. So... Here are people who have given incredibly generously um, and yet are under God's immediate judgment. Um, so there's certainly no endorsement for creating a culture of sacrificial giving that begins to incentivize people to give without the requisite internal generosity and you know, love for God, appreciation for uh, the reason that they're giving. Um, and so there has to be something else, something deeper, something more. What is that something else? Take us there. Yeah. Okay. So um, that's where we're going today, I guess. And in, so in Second Corinthians, um, we, we get this whole treatment of how the letter kills. And so I, I recommend that, you know, anybody read Second Corinthians 3. Uh, he talks about this, that when we see the Bible as a list of rules, and I say the Bible because... I want to I want to really apply Paul and Paul had a Bible 
His Bible was not the same as our Bible. His Bible was uh, what they had at that time, 50 books, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, some were included that, that we don't have and stuff like that. But generally our 39 plus a, a couple more. And that was just as authoritative as our 66 is to us. So I, I want us to be able to critique our own 66 just as Paul critiqued his 50. That way we can use the Bible biblically, if that if that's fair. Okay. So uh, as, as we look at like 2 Corinthians 3, and he talks about how um, that the letter versus the spirit, right? And he's saying that we can, we can look at the letter of it or... We can look at the spirit of the scripture and that looking at the letter of it was the way that the Jews had been doing it, right? And that he himself had been doing it. I, I think there's a degree to which when we read 2 Corinthians 3 and we, and we get down to like uh, verse 16, he says, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, that, that there's a degree to which that's autobiographical. Mm-hmm. For Paul, I mean, you know, in other places he says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews and all of that, right? So that there is a, a a surface, if you will, a veil, and for Paul that is the prescriptives, the specifics of his scripture, and that there is a spirit, uh, and if you know, we can say a, a disembodied personality, okay, if that's fair. We can say there's a disembodied personality that lives underneath these 50 books. Now, keep in mind, Paul did not have Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Right. Right. And we can tell that he may have had an oral Jesus tradition that he received later um, because he, he references something that the Lord said. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says, the Lord commanded that you not get divorced. Right. So he, he seems to at least have, be aware of an oral Jesus tradition um, that he wasn't privy to firsthand, just based on his own biography, but um, that he doesn't have these books bound and, and received as inspiration. When he goes to find Jesus in the Bible, now he's going to the Old Testament. And he says that, that, um, he says that there's a spirit behind these words and that that... And then when we get down to like 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 17, he identifies that spirit. Now, again, when, when I say the word spirit, I'm speaking of a disembodied personality or the uh, encapsulation of a, uh, an ideal, uh, uh, you know, the personification of an ideal, if you will. So I'm not saying that it's not a spirit that's conscious or whatever, but, I, but I'm saying that it, the idea of spirit it also addresses our idea of spirit. You know, we say the spirit of St. Louis, uh-huh. right? Uh, and so there, there, it's both in, in the ancient concept that the idea of the spirit of St. Louis or, you know, whatever, the spirit of the age, um, that we're, we're speaking of, of, of a particular kind of a value set or a characteristic set of characteristics, ideals. We're also speaking of a consciousness in many cases. Okay, so um, he says, now the Lord is the spirit. Now, throughout this section, he's been saying behind the letter of the scripture, the Old Testament, there is a spirit. Mm -hmm. And then he, you know, we kind of reach this 
this climax in his argument is he's been saying that there's a spirit here and this spirit gives life and this spirit is the purpose of, of it all. And, and, and then he says, but, but Israel can't see that spirit because they're too busy trying to keep up with the regulations and the letter um, of Moses and this veil is, is on their hearts. And then he says, when anyone turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. And now all of a sudden, boom, it's like he takes us, he takes us with him as he's saying that we can't see through this veil and we're blinded and that there's a spirit back there. And then in verse uh, 16, he says, the veil is taken away. The Lord is the spirit. So he's, he's introducing us mm-hmm. to who's behind that veil. Mm. He's waited to verse 17 to to identify that spirit. And uh, now know. the Lord is the spirit. Yes. And where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. Yes. Verse exactly. 17. Yeah. Um and so uh you know uh, the New Testament writers are going off of the Jeremiah 31 tradition where um God says I'm going to I'm going to give them a new covenant and it's not going to be like the one that I made with them on Mount Sinai. Um, and this covenant is going to be different because it's going to be written on their hearts and no one will have to be taught it. Mm-hmm. Whoa, <laughs> that, that's a very strange covenant. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, if you, were a, if you were a first century Jew, you spent the first 10 years of your life having this drilled into you, you know, that the, the Mosaic covenant had to be taught. You weren't going to just pick it up by osmosis. But all of a sudden, here's this covenant that is not supposed to need to be taught to us. Um, and so here it is, and it's supposed to be within us. Um, and so when this, when this thing is written on our hearts, we can do whatever we want. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, like Augustine says, if anyone loves God, let him do as he will. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that he's saying, so when this spirit comes in, there's, there's freedom. Um, we, we uh, in First Timothy 1, he says that the law is not given for a righteous person, but for unrighteous people. So his implication there is, is that if you are already doing right, you don't need somebody to tell you to not do wrong. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then you're free. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, he he says, we all with unveiled faces contemplate or reflect the Lord's glory. Now, Now he's beginning not only to speak about our being able to perceive the uh, revelation that's behind there, but but to uh, begin to apply it, for it to begin to change our way of living. We are being transformed. Yes, right. Into the same image, the image of Christ. Right. And we're being transformed by beholding the glory of the Lord. Is that yes. what he says? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And where are we beholding it? Well, we're beholding it in the scripture, according to Paul uh, here, um, which is, uh, I mean, a beautiful thing. And it is, so it's, it's saying, hey, scripture can kill you if you use it wrong. If you use it right, it will transform you not just into a, a decent person, but into the glory of the Lord. Uh, that's kind of a high standard. Uh, and and using mechanism. it right is seeing Jesus in the scripture. Yes, yes. Um, and, 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 uh, and seeing the gospel right. in the scripture. Exactly. And um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, how do we see Jesus in the scripture? Where do we recognize him? I mean, that, that's a whole other podcast. That's probably a whole other series. Mm-hmm. It may be a whole season mm-hmm. to talk about where we see Jesus in the Old Testament. 
But uh, I, I want to focus on this idea that where he says the Lord is the Spirit. Okay. Um, because I, I think that's critically important. Um, Paul didn't, when Paul thought about the personality of Jesus Christ, he, he likely did not have all of these stories that we have from the Gospels in his mind. Right. So when he thought about the person of Jesus Christ, he had to have something much more um, reduced, <laughs> something, something more essential, something that is the spirit. That's kind of another sense in which we use the spirit of a thing. It's the, it's the essence of a thing. And so he's saying that, that Jesus is the essence of the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus has become essential. So what does that mean? I mean, you know, when I first started reading the Gospels, I was like, all I want to do is just put on a white robe and sit under a tree, get in some sandals, you know, uh, do some miracles. I mean, I wanted to do everything he was doing line item because I just so admire him. I still admire the person, Jesus of Nazareth. And yet I found that that just is not doable. At least if it is, if I were ever to succeed at it, I would probably not be anything like Jesus because I would be so judgmental of everybody who wasn't meeting this incredibly lofty standard, at least in my own mind. So how do we follow Jesus without feeling like we have to reproduce the lifestyle that we see in the New Testament and so it, I think it turns on this notion that the Lord is the spirit of the scripture. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49, he, he talks about this again. Now, we have to keep in mind that Paul is, is um, he's just giving us tips of, of icebergs in his letters, that there's a whole conceptual world in his mind that revolves around uh, the gospel. I mean... If we read all of, let's say we started at, at um, 6 p.m. tonight and we started reading the New Testament, the Pauline corpus of the New Testament, mm -hmm. how long would it take us to read the Pauline corpus out loud? Mm, for sure all night. Yeah. Uh, sometime into tomorrow. We'd finish tomorrow, I think. I think. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it'd take less long uh, than that? I, I would say maybe four hours or so, uh, four or five hours. I mean, it, you know, if we just take the Pauline corpus, so the mm -hmm. New Testament is such a small percentage. Mm -hmm. It's like maybe 15% of the entire Bible. Mm -hmm. And then um, half of it is Luke, Acts. We exclude that. And then we take away the Gospels. And we just start in Romans and we read through second th or we read through the pastorals. So it, it would take us a few hours probably. But, you know, we, we see in, in the book of Acts, here he comes into town and, and he just preaches one sermon and it's all night, right? right. <laughs> so the guy had a lot to say about the gospel and how it related to scripture. We only get pieces of it, of a conceptual world. But I think from these pieces, we can construct at least the, the frame, the wireframe of how right. he understood it. So uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, remember, keep in mind, the Lord is the spirit, okay? 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49, he says, so it is written the first man Adam became a living being um, the last Adam a life-giving spirit now at what point did he become a life-giving spirit well the the context here is about the resurrection from the dead mm -hmm. and so Paul is saying that at at his resurrection Jesus became a life-giving spirit okay um, as opposed to a living being that Adam became 
and, and he says that the spiritual did not come first, the natural, uh, but the natural, the first man, dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As uh, was the earthly man, so are those of the earth, and as was the heavenly man, so are those of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. That sounds a lot like 2 Corinthians 3. We're reflecting mm-hmm. his glory. Mm-hmm. So could I suggest to you that, that whatever happened at his resurrection turned Jesus of Nazareth from a human being with his own history, story, career, preferences, to uh, a spirit, um, to a, an essence, if you will, that we can now breathe in and be animated by um, and uh, through that be transformed into the image of the heavenly man. Hmm. Um, so this is why uh, I say we can't necessarily follow the Jesus that we see in the Gospels. And if we could, we would be doing Christianity very differently from the way Paul and the early apostles did it, um, or at least the earliest believers. The apostles, I guess, had all this information in their heads. Um, but until those books were written, it probably wasn't a codified Jesus story, you know, we couldn't construct this sense of this is who Jesus is. Um, so how did they follow Jesus? You know, we, we think of following Jesus and we want to project ourselves into the story and try to mimic the lifestyle. At least some people do. And, and if we don't do that, then we think we're not following Jesus. And if we're not following Jesus, maybe we're just going to church or maybe we're just trying to keep up with rules. But that's not good enough either. Um, we have to follow him. And in following him, we can become like him. Um, and I would suggest to you that it is through his death and resurrection that we encounter the essence of who he is and can imbibe that. Yes. The Holy Spirit? Yes. Uh, and, and yet the Holy Spirit is himself, you know, a being, which is why, you know, Jesus in, in John 7 says, hey, you know, if you're thirsty, come to me receive from within your being will flow rivers of living water, right? That, that the spring of living water is going to come welling up. And then John gives his commentary and he says this, he said, referring to the Holy Spirit who was going to be given or the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Christ had not yet been glorified. So there is this kind of synonymousness, <laughs> you know, the, this, the synchrony between the announcement of Christ's death, burial, and, and resurrection, his glorification in heaven, but, but you know, that, and, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Um, how that happens, I don't know. But I do know that the Holy Spirit comes to apply the Spirit of Scripture, to be the Spirit of Scripture, that there's this overlap when you when you have three persons in one being, we we can't make these fine divisions. But what but I what I would say is is that if someone claims to be walking by the Holy Spirit, but they are not typifying this essence that Paul talks about, that they're lying. 
that ultimately the standard as we look on one another and we hold one another accountable, that the standard can't be, did the Holy Spirit tell you to do that? The standard has to be, is this in harmony with the Spirit of Scripture who is the Lord? Mm -hmm. And this Spirit of Scripture is conveyed to us through this announcement that Christ has died. He is raised again. He's coming back. And this announcement now, it gives us this essence. How does that work? <laughs> Great question. How yeah. does that work? Yeah. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of stuff in here, and I could, I could probably unpack this all day long. Um, but Where what do you I, want to start? What I'd prefer to do is I'd prefer to go to uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, and we'll just get to brass tacks um, so that we can... How is this... How is the essence of of who jesus is how is it conveyed how is it transferred to people in such a way that it's going to change the way they live and it's going to keep them from the negative the deadly aspects of rule keeping it's got to do both right it's got to change the way we live but it's also got to save us from hypocrisy um, judgmentalism, um, pride. Mm-hmm. It's got to save us from those things. I mean, those things don't have a place before God, and we're kind of stuck if we're if we're left with a law. It's like the better we do at obeying God, the more dis- you know we kind of stink in His nostrils because we become judgmental and arrogant. So how do we how do we do that? How do we become good people without being intolerable? Uh You know, um, and, and, but that can happen and that can happen if, if this goodness is, is a gift, it's something that is given to us as, you know, the scriptures say. Now, when the reformers read that, when Paul or when, um, Martin Luther read this idea that God is going to give you righteousness, he had, he had a very specific mechanism in mind. We even have terminology for it. Uh, and that is that it's imputed righteousness right that's mm-hmm. good nice reformation kind of a term as opposed to imparted righteousness right right uh, or forensic righteousness or justification um and that's I, I think that's helpful in the dialogue but it's 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 not the whole picture so do we um, need to give some background as to what in the world we're talking about imputed imparted yeah yeah yeah. background for martin luther yeah, go ahead you, you're actually you're actually seminary trained why don't you give <laughs> us some background well i mean i just thought the listeners may not know what we're what we're referring to luther was um luther was um contrast his teachings contrasted with his roman catholic church uh which said that god's uh, righteousness is imparted to us through our observance of the sacraments and so forth um, and he saw that God gives us, uh, impute, imputes to us, counts us righteous. Um, not, okay, it's not, it's not a righteousness that is infused into right. our character, uh, but it's a righteousness that is, in, that is counted as ours, as though we were righteous. Yes. That was his core insight. Right. Uh, yeah, so it's it's it comes from more of an accounting metaphor or a, a judicial metaphor that we're declared innocent, um, absent all the evidence to the contrary, mm-hmm. and and I think that was really important to Luther, especially because he was just racked with guilt over his failings, 
um, as minor as I think a lot of people would have seen them mm-hmm. to be at the time. Um, and his big insight turns around Romans chapter 1, verse 17. So I'm going to read that. I'm going to read it in the New American Standard Bible because, yeah, boy, I hate to I hate to be the guy to to undermine confidence in a translation, but I just can't. I can't go to the NIV today, right there. I love it. I was just reading from it in Second Corinthians three, but here, um, functional equivalence uh, is a translating method. It, it kind of breaks down. Um, so I'm I'm going to read it in old school here, uh, and I'm going to back up to verse sixteen. Uh, for context, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Now, whatever we say positively about the gospel, I don't think we can, I, I don't think will be an exaggeration or hyperbole. After Paul has said, It is God's power. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, uh, and, I, and I think anything else that we say about the gospel would be, if it doesn't hit that mark, then it, we may be underselling it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if in our practical life we find that it doesn't measure up, we're probably not proclaiming it correctly. We're, we're not preaching the full, you know, the gospel as, as Paul did. And, and we'll go through that someday. But anyway, he says it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, for Paul, that would have been the big emphasis. For Paul, that was the big watershed moment. Anybody can come in. You don't Mm -hmm. have to convert to Judaism. Everybody can access salvation from God on the basis of believing this message. Mm -hmm. That was was a a mighty truth and and an incendiary truth. Mm -hmm. It was something that, um, that drew persecution throughout Paul's career um, in, in sharing this word. Well, how is it possible that these, these wretches, the, the pagans, could be counted among God's people? You know, how can they be translated from their perverse society into the holy people of God without going through kind of the pedestrian route? You know, how is it that they can jump ahead uh-huh. and instead of having to crawl through the canyon and the hills and the, you know, at that time, a uh, thousand years, 1500 years of, of Jewish history, how can they just take the quick route? And, and how can somebody be saved who's not righteous and all that? And so that's the conundrum. And he gets in verse 17, he says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Wait a minute. He's talking to Jews and Gentiles. If you're Jewish and you're in the room and you've been studying these 50 books your whole life, to, for someone to say the righteousness of God is finally revealed, I, how are you going to react to that? You know, you're like, wait, we, we've already ta- seen that. We've been given the Torah. And he's saying, no, you haven't. Um, he says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. So, uh, the, the debate that Luther had with the Catholic Church was is that the Catholic Church said when they heard righteousness of God, they heard God's own personal righteousness, that by which he is righteous. And for them, that meant that God is going to send people to hell. And they based that on the context because in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So they're saying God's righteousness is you know perfect. It's holy. It is full of wrath. 
compared to the unrighteousness of humankind. So that was the way the Catholic Church saw it. When they heard righteousness of God, they heard the righteousness by which God is righteous. For Luther, that was untenable because all it did was tell you, you're going to hell. It doesn't matter. Do your best. You're still going. You know, uh, Maybe you can work your way out after, in, when you get to purgatory, but you're still going to have to take a trip through there. That was tough for Luther, and as it would be for any of us. It doesn't really very, it doesn't sound like good news, which is what the word, you know, translated gospel means, you know, Evangelion. So for Luther, Luther read that, and instead of hearing it as God's own personal righteousness, he heard it as righteousness from God. You know, the righteousness of God that, that God gives is revealed. And certainly throughout the Roman letter, he there's a lot to corroborate that, that God mm -hmm. makes us righteous, mm -hmm. you know, because he says, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And he talks about how God considered Abraham righteous mm -hmm. in Genesis 15 for belief. So this righteousness is assigned to somebody. God considers them righteous. That's not incorrect. But I, the problem is, is that Luther came to see it as either or. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe that that's the case. I, I, how is God righteous? Did God follow the Ten Commandments? You know, that did he keep up with the 613 rules, you know, throughout the, the Jewish Midrash and all that that they had? He didn't. That the very notion of prohibitions assumes that there's evil in the universe and in God God in his pre exist you know, in his eternal state before he created anything, the concept of evil was just completely foreign. So the list of don'ts would have been utterly nonsensical. And and Paul is saying that we're we're there now that we've been invited, included into a standard where don'ts are nonsensical. And uh, that that standard is faith. That there is this, not a belief in a proposition, but an implicit trust in another person. Where Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith is yes. what you're talking about. Right, right. But... And the Greek there is even clearer. I mean, it's it's a confusing uh, phrase that from faith to faith is so confusing that we tra and more modern translations obscure the very notion of it by saying from by faith from first to last in the NIV, which again is is kind of trying to back up Luther. You know, Luther is like sola fide, right? Faith alone, mm -hmm. and and that's what the NIV would lead us to, to think. And and that's not wrong. It's just that the picture of faith that that gives us is too small. And it leaves us with a group of people who have believed a message, but whose lives are unchanged. And now we have to go back and give them rules, tell them to follow what we can distill out of the New Testament. We, you know, the church kind of push pressure on them to live certain ways or avoid certain gross immorality. And, and their life is not changed, certainly not superior to that of a first century Jew. Can I suggest that the gospel, that when we hear a story about how a man came and trusted God so much that he offered up his own life in obedience for the redemption of humankind, and that as a result of having done that, he is now raised to life again he is, to never die, that he has been transformed into this resplendent human form and is now seated at the right hand of God, ruling as the king of the world next to God, as Daniel 7 predicted would happen, okay? 
that when we hear that story, what we get is a basis for trusting God ourselves, that, that because of his death, we are now sons of God. Because um, the Son of God trusted his Father, we can trust our Father, that we are now folded into the eternal life of the Father and the Son, mediated by the Spirit. And that happens when we hear that message and we likewise come to trust God with our lives. That we are invited to give God a blank check and say, I'm yours, do with me as you will. And that in that transaction, in that, that notion, is predicated the, the very essence of the Son. And that's going to manifest in lots of different ways in men and women throughout the ages from various cultures. But it's always going to have in common the same spirit, the same essence. That God's standard, uh, eternal standard has been implicit trust, self-forgetting love. And that in the gospel, what we see is that now applied to us and we are invited to join. And that's the righteousness, which is both God's own righteousness and that which he gives. And through that vehicle now, we can go on and live righteous lives. Living by faith. Yes. As he lived by faith. Right. So let's just assume that somebody is out there and they know that they should whatever, um, stop using drugs. And they've come to the realization that they uh, can no longer control their actions. But they hear this message that says, God loves you as you are, sent his son to die for you as you are, and you're invited to become his child on the merits of Christ. And they believe that. And they are given faith, a trust in, in a father who loves them. Now, that person has impetus. They have resources to commit themselves to God and to receive from him strength to rise above this thing that has them trapped. So for Paul... Paul would have not seen some sort of an external standard. He wouldn't have judged that person and said, yeah, but, you know, you don't go to church on Wednesday night. Paul would have said, here's the righteousness of God. Um, when we lay an external standard on somebody, I think we immediately clamp down their progress. Um, that that person has to respond to their own internal, their conscience, that they have to accept that love to the full so that they can now offer that to others, that person will, chances are, begin to reach out to others who have struggled. They'll begin to love in a way that they weren't because they were so consumed with their own problems. Even if they were consumed with self-loathing, they weren't capable of love. So love is now, love is now um, growing. It's springing up from this faith that has been implanted in this person. And Paul saw that kind of thing happen in these pagans. And he realized here are people who from within the very core of their being are just deeply in love with God and willing to do anything that he calls upon them to do. And for Paul, that was righteousness. And Paul would say, 
God considers it so as well. Mm-hmm. That's just a start. Yeah. <laughs> That's all the t- we have time for today. Yeah. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.